Listener Production. I think when you go down really low, you get to meet yourself. You get to meet the rawest, most ugly, most alone version of yourself. And from there, you are forced to become your own best friend. And so then you emerge again with that conversation, the kind conversation, the compassionate conversation. There's this reckoning with what matters because everything seems like bullshit in comparison. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep with our most loved personalities. From love to loss, and everything in between. I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we all love and admire. I always cry and have a laugh, so you can expect some tears and laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. In this episode, I speak with environmental warrior and best-selling author Sarah Wilson. Sarah doesn't do things by halves. She lives minimally, she treks the world in the same pair of green shorts and is passionate about making us understand climate change. She doesn't lecture, but explains in her well-researched and lyrical way how we can make a difference one keep up at a time. I'm a massive fan of yours and have been for such a long time because what I love about you is you challenge me to be a better person. Not anymore, but I used to love my takeaway coffee cup. I love online shopping. (laughs) I still love sugar. I can't quit sugar. But you always make me think about being a better person? Well, that's sort of a double-edged sword, Jess, because on the one hand, I love that, you know, you're making those wonderful shifts for the better. But um, also, I don't like the idea of being a nagging voice in your ear. (laughs) That's a horrible idea. (laughs) You are not a nagging voice. You are, you're one of those people, you've written two extraordinary books that have had a real impact on me. Your most recent one, This Wild and Precious Life, what really resonated with me was I used to think I can't do anything so I'll do nothing. But again, you made me really think about there is something you can do. Yeah, that's the biggest, biggest problem with, and to to be honest, it's got a lot to do with the way that the environment movement, the climate movement has operated. It has overwhelmed people with facts and figures and, and sort of scary stuff. But to be honest, it's dialed down because people go, oh, people can't cope with the scary stuff. So we'll kind of uh, water it down a bit. But what the movement hasn't done is provided a picture of how it can all be achieved through everyone doing it because they want to do it, because it's actually a more enjoyable, charming prospect than the status quo. You know, I think the environmental movement, which is what it's been called, has been kind of a bit miserable. And so what I try to do with this One Wild and Precious Life is to turn it into something that's more positive. I'll explain it like this. We've got very prehistoric brains and when we're in a state of crisis, we go into overwhelm. So the amygdala shuts down the part of the brain that can make nice, sensible decisions. And instead we go into flight or fight or freeze, which is the state 
you know, you're describing, you go into a freeze mode. It's all too much, so I'm just going to do nothing. And the only way to get out of that is actually to, to invite a better prospect, a more enjoyable prospect. So I suppose that's what I've always tried to do for probably the last 20 years. And even in, while I was working in media, I just tried to make living a more conscious life sexier, than the status quo. So wearing, you know, scrappy old clothes and hiking instead of shopping and all of that kind of thing, I've tried to make it somehow look sexy. And gradually, gradually people have gone, oh, you know, I might give this hiking thing a go. I might try wearing something a few more times before I throw it out, that kind of thing. And it is it is a really big issue that we get overwhelmed and so we do nothing. And my mantra is just start and you'll start to feel better about yourself. You know, action begets action, care begets care, and we are a species craving more care and intimacy and connection. And you know? more meaningful conversations. And, and again, oh, yeah. that's what I think you provoke in people. I want to talk about, you know, you say you want to make hiking and all those things sexier and cooler because you have, is it just one pair of shorts, Sarah? Um, I have three in total. So I've got a pair of denim shorts that I've had since I was editor of Cosmo. So we're talking... Wow, a long time. Yeah, yeah. No, we're talking 13, maybe 13, 14 years ago. Um, And then I've got a pair of green shorts I've had 11 years, but the elastic's just gone on them. So I... And then I have a pair of black shorts, which I've probably had for seven years. So everything has a story and gets worn multiple times. But yeah, that's right. The the hiking shorts that have been with me around the world, um, yeah, they've just died. Do you ever miss that young woman that you were editing Cosmo, that sort of glamorous fashion, sort of lighter, I suppose, in a way, less concerned about the big things in life? Well, you know, the thing is, is that that was all smoke and mirrors because I was just as concerned and I was living it out. Like I might have been wearing really bright colours and lots of pink and yellow and everything, but it was all secondhand. And I rode a bike with my, you know, stack hat into the ACP offices. Everyone was turning up in their big black BMWs and into the car park and I was there, you know, in my, in my shorts, um, riding my bike and getting changed in the ACP bathrooms. So in many ways, not much has changed. And the other thing is, when I was editor of Cosmo, and right up until this day, I've never owned a handbag. What? So I was offered handbags, you know, like the various companies would offer me, and I'd just go, no, nah, no, nah, just not going to buy into it. I Why did you put it- your stuff in, though? <laughs> Where did you keep your stuff? I've always had satchels, like, you know, the little satchels when you go to buy a book or whatever, and a credit card down my bra. Oh, like when you're riding goodness. a bike, when you ride a bike everywhere, and I used to go to black tie events, nobody knew though. I would go and park my bike around the corner, swap my shoes around, pat my hair down and arrive at some Estee Lauder event. <laughs> And everyone would go, oh, the editor of Cosmos here. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, you say not much has changed, but a lot has changed because you did really make huge inroads and steps to change your life. I mean, I, I also got so much out of your book, Now We Make the Beast Beautiful. And you talk about one of your, I suppose, spiritual counsellors, Sky, and she was talking to you about how just take the leap because your angel wings will suddenly appear and you're going to land. You're going to be okay. But before you take that leap, it is hard, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. Gosh, you've got a good memory. So Sky, she was my therapist when I was at Cosmo. And you might remember that I actually said to her, right, your job is to make sure I don't lose the plot, that I don't lose my sense of value and what life is meant to be about. And, you know, make sure I don't get caught up was her brief. So it was when I was leaving Cosmo and I was making the decision to, because my values were really rubbing up against things like it was just becoming increasingly hard. And of course, what ended up stopping me in my tracks was an illness, an autoimmune disease. But prior to that, I was Aminanarian. And she said, Sarah, when you make a big change in life, when you take a big leap into the unknown, you have to free fall. You don't know where you're going to land, but you always land in a better place because you grow these fairy wings that carry you there. And I'm like, oh my God, fairy wings. And then she said, you know, the problem is we all think that we can go out and buy the fairy wings first. So we want the fairy wings and then we'll jump into the great unknown. And as she said, there's no such thing as a fairy wing shop, you know, and that's the truth of it. And we were just talking off air while we were getting mics set up and so on, that the great thing about getting older is you have enough experiences of that. Sometimes you're shoved into the unknown, right? And you might at the time go, what the hell is happening? Why me? And then afterwards you look at it and you go, oh, my God, thank God for that shove because I might not have done it otherwise. And, of course, you do land in a better place, even if that better place only comes about because of the growth that you have to go through in that wrestle, in the quagmire, in the free fall, in the pain of it all. That wrestle with yourself is absolutely key. So you're right. I've had to do some big leaps, particularly in media. So I I jumped when I left Cosmo. I jumped when I left MasterChef. And it's all for the same reasons. My values were rubbing up against what I was doing in the material world. And it just didn't, you know, there was lack of congruence. It was like a square peg in a round hole. And and I tend to, I'm very lucky in the sense that if that happens to me, I tend to explode. I don't have a choice. I explode my way out of a scenario. And I've done it many times. And with I Quit Sugar, when I eventually decided, I'd made a commitment I wouldn't get caught up once again. And this time I charged my accountant with it. I said, right. When I've reached a point where I can survive off a wage, which is roughly the minimum income, the base wage, CPI'd, you know, indexed to the age of 94, because I figure 94 is a good innings, then I wish to stop and dedicate myself to being of service. I don't want to get caught up and think, oh, I've got the Camry, now I need the BMW, then I need the, you know. Um, where not- does that come from, though? Because it mm. that is so selfless and... The thing is, I want to do good things, but I also want the shiny stuff and I'm not willing to let go of that. Where does it come from you that you're able to go, no, I'm going to live on the minimum wage. This is what I'm going to do because I want to be of service. How can you do that or where does that come from? It comes from doing that moral wrestle with myself at various junctures. Um, It comes from being and. I make no secret of this. I have struggled with mental illness and I, you know, obviously this is a great forum to talk about it with you because you're very knowledgeable in this area. You know, I was diagnosed with bipolar at 21 and so I've wrestled with that and I've wrestled with suicide on four occasions and I've made the choice not to die. And so it was a decision I made and, and I suppose when you've gone down to those depths, you've had to face some stuff and make some decisions that, I don't know, a fundamental, a fundamental. And I have this little phrase, if we lose it all, 
what do we have? If we lose the climate, if we lose the climate battle, if we whatever it might be, what is left? And for me, it's work and love. That's what I've drilled it down to. And so they're my two pursuits. And really everything else pales. And once you make those commitments, everything starts to, you, you get a sensitivity to everything else that's superfluous. You know, to everything, everything feels redundant and it irritates me. So it's almost like that compass has meant that everything else drops away and it irritates me to the point where I can't go there. Um, so yeah, that's probably where it comes from. I mean, I grew up with an awareness of, minimalism and that kind of thing. I grew up on a subsistence living property only because mum and dad, they were poor, you know, there was lots of kids and they had no money. And so we just had to live that way. But rather than actually swinging out and becoming a rampant materialist to make up for the loss, my brothers and my four brothers, my sister and I, we've all become quite well, very, very minimal. We all ride bikes. I don't think among us there's a handbag. <laughs> um, <laughs> lots and- of satchels. Yeah, I just think I think my brothers just have a credit card in their back pocket. That's pretty much it. Um, maybe not even that because we don't buy that much. But yeah, it's just I've refined my sense of joy, and I've had to accept I'm a weirdo. That's the other aspect of it. Um, but it's you're not a most- wonderful weirdo, Sarah. And and I think what you were saying about your mental health, and I think all of us in in different times of our lives sort of grapple with it, that you almost, you have to reach your rock bottom until you work out, this is, this is my rock bottom. I don't want to come back here again. So what can I do to rebuild myself? And, and I think sometimes rock bottom, it, it doesn't have to be a negative. I know for me, when I went through my postnatal depression, that was my absolute rock bottom. And I look back at that time and I, I, I still feel sick in the stomach if I start to think too much about it. But I'm really grateful for that because there's mm. no way I would have pushed myself in the way I have subsequently. I wouldn't be as gentle on myself. I wouldn't be as gentle on other people if I hadn't have experienced that. And also realising that for me, my mental health is a constant thing that I have to be mindful of and look after. I take take medication. I'm aware of things that might trigger me, which if I hadn't have had that first episode, I wouldn't have done that. You bring up the word of, um, you know, you've just got to be conscious of vigilance. And vigilance is a wonderful thing, right? Because there's so much flaccidity in life, so many nebulous, I don't know, she'll be right kind of things going on. When you are forced into it, something vigilant, deliberate, I think Brene Brown uses the word deliberate, um, it's actually wonderful because you fire up, you get online with life, right? I mean, I describe it as having to carry a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of my life. I have to stay steady because if I start to wobble, that bowl of water will start to slosh everywhere. And then I spend my existence going back to the source to fill back up again. And that is a waste of my allotted 94 years on this planet. I think when you go down really low, you get to meet yourself. You get to meet the rawest, most ugly, most alone version of yourself. And from there, you are forced to become your own best friend. And so then you emerge again with that conversation, the kind conversation, as you mentioned, um, the compassionate conversation. And so I think there's that, but also there's this reckoning with what matters because everything seems like bullshit in comparison. So for me, 
consuming things, it, I find myself getting caught up. I tell you when I get caught up, I get caught up if I've got to go and catch a train. So I often ride my bike up to the train station. I use a train to get somewhere or whatever. And I see the billboards in the train station. And I'm like, I suddenly go, my God, maybe I do need a pair of, of, of leggings with lace trim <laughs> or whatever it might be. I'd like them with no? leopard print, I think. Yes, you would. <laughs> um, and so I go, gosh, you know, I want that want, 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 want can't, starts to happen. And of course, if you enter a shop and then you start to see other things, then you start to, like, I'm, I am blissfully oblivious to the trends. And I don't follow fashion people I'm very careful who I follow online. I follow people who bring me joy. And if I feel this grimy, cringy feeling when I come across their feed, I just unfollow them. And if I figure that they're going to be somebody who might be a bit sensitive to that, I just mute them. Good advice. I like that. Mm, Because some people get hurt. You know, I personally wouldn't, but I understand if other people do. Well, I, I accept that other people do. So we have to do that. We have to surround ourselves with the right profits. And tell me, though, you talk about working out what matters and I really Mm. wanted what matters to you right now. Um, Okay. So Eric Fromm's this wonderful poet but also a nuclear physicist who talked about, well, he's sort of, he's a philosopher who wrote about things in the nuclear age, sort of the 1960s and 70s, and he reduced things down to make your life a study in work and love. So that's where I got that idea from. It's a study in work and love. So I study it. So work for me is applying myself to being of service. And that's not all doom and gloom and self-flagellation. It's actually a lot of fun because when you do that, you're surrounded by people who are true creatives. So I work with the wildest, like, little millennial graffiti artists and Indigenous people doing really cool poetry because they're the people who are also at this level, you know. So the climate movement, I go to where people, I can feel everyone's angst and hurt and pain bubbling. So I don't necessarily go, right, my next book's going to be about this. It's more about an emergence. Like I I get so upset by other people's pain in an area that that's, I just go down rabbit holes. I want to find the thing that can help people, that can steer humanity to a better better outcome. And so I go down rabbit holes and it takes me three years. (laughs) I do that. And then, and then the other thing is the love thing. I've been single a very long time. I think, you know, sort of 13, 14 years. So that aspect of things ain't working for me. So that's why I started fostering. I've been fostering for three years and I made the decision, sort of made the decision not to have children, to be honest. And yeah, fostering is just the most beautiful experience. And so I've got a a little one with me now who's full time with me and she's, I mean, she just, she surprises me every day, the joy she brings me. And so I've, I've, I, study in work and love, my study in love is about exploring types of love that go beyond standard protocols of marriage, a partner, you know, like there's all kinds of love. I have a love of nature as well. And that's another study. Let's talk about, I suppose, those different studies, but also the reality of it. So first of all, Love, love in relationships. Would you say you're frightened of falling in love, of having a long-term enduring relationship now at this point in your life? No, 
No. I mean, yes, I'm scared, but I love being scared. So, um, no, I, I love challenge. If somebody wants to scare me into a date, I'm like all for it. I just, I'm the yes person. No, it's, it, that's not the problem, Jess. Um, it's not that I have a, a line of men lining up outside my front door. It's a peculiar time in history to be a woman with strong opinions, to be a woman who doesn't apologise um, for who she is. And, and a woman who's, you know, financially independent, I don't need a man, right? I want a man in my life. I'd love a love, you know, life partner. The other thing is, Jess, as you get older, I mean, hopefully you partner with somebody, you're in a relationship with somebody who actually encourages you to have a better life than you did before. If you're going backwards, then that's not a good sign. So as your life gets better, and my life has got better as I've got older, it just does, my bar has got higher, not because I'm fussier. It's just because my life is a little bit awesome and richer and more full of character and whatever. And so it does become more difficult. And I find I've generally found love overseas in other cultures. And that's why really I lived on the road for eight years. In Australia, I do find it quite difficult. I find if I'm going to be really honest, I find that the Australian culture is not wholly respectful of strong women, we kind of get in the way. We kind of get in the way of the view of the surf, you know? And so... (laughs) And you'd intimidate. I mean, the thing is, your intellect is searing. And I love the way you intimidate because that challenges me. But I think for a lot of blokes, and I don't want to generalise, but I will, Aussie blokes would find that threatening. And they'd be like, oh, I don't know what to say or do. (laughs) To which I say, and, I mean, you know what, men used to fight wars and they used to fend off wildebeest and we're cut out for challenge. And so I sort of, you know, I've had a lot of people tell me that and it's very kind of you to say it in such a respectful way, but, yeah, I kind of go, and? <laughs> like, I'm and, here. and, and, up. Yeah, just come and meet me, you know. And I don't, and my friends laugh because they go, your standards are not exacting, Sarah. Like I I don't expect them to, you know, like I don't have a criteria apart from a pulse in their own teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I think the point though you make about it's got to bring something to your life is such a good one because I know when I was younger, I used to think I needed to be in a relationship because that was what mattered and I I couldn't be on my own. And it wasn't until I felt comfortable in my own skin and happy with who I was that I was ready to meet the right person and to be in a relationship Mm. that, that brought out the best of me, but also enabled me to be my crazy self and and still keep evolving. And and I think that's the tricky part. That's the hard part. It is. It is. It is. And I could say, well, maybe I haven't done the work to evolve into who I am. I think this is about as near as I'm going to get. Oh, come on. You've done so much work. I mean, I think you've done enormous amounts of work. And where you are so generous too, in your books, you've shared a lot of that work that you have done that I think helps so many people, me included, to look at the way we lead our lives and how we manage things. Because you also mentioned in there about love and how you have this this beautiful foster child now in your life. And you shared with with us in your books, your journey initially to become a mum and the incredible emotion and angst that that brought. I mean, I've read so much about those different times in your life, Sarah, and it made me weep. Oh, thank you. 
I sort of don't get emotional about my own stuff, but when people show me their emotion back to it, I go, oh, yeah, and then I'll get emotional. Um, because in, the t- in those moments, you're just trying to find this dirty path through it. Um, I think also, yeah, I think I often go through those parts of my journey on my own in far from parts of the universe, you know, and so it probably adds to it, right? And do you yeah. think you do that deliberately, that you remove yourself to, to get through it? Mm. It's been a big part of my bipolar is that when I start to feel things ramp up, I exit the country. And it's really just, it's me trying to spare the people around me, you know, so I just hit the road and I go through it on my own and work myself out and then come home. It's sort of been my way. But of course, with COVID, I've been stuck here. I've been, it's been the longest, I've been in this apartment now three years. It's the longest I've lived anywhere since I left home at 17. So, um, And yeah. has that been good? Have you found that that's been a good thing? Because I know sometimes when people are very strong, they find it hard to ask for help and, and you sort of feel that you have to do it yourself. So as you say, you would remove yourself overseas. Now you're forced to be home. Mm. Has that been in a strange way, a good thing that you've been able to count on people more? Well, it's a bit like what we were saying before about, you know, sometimes you and I have had a few shoves into the unknown, right? And it can actually be wonderful for highly strung kind of A-types and I relish it. So to be rendered choiceless is a freedom. It's the ultimate freedom. So in many ways, I quite love it. It's like, well, I'm stuck here. I mean, We've got COVID coming and going, restrictions coming and going. My entire career is in a state of freefall. I've got a tour, I've got all these different projects going on and they're determined by border closures. But, yeah, I suppose the the whole idea of being somebody who's strong or has complexities, asking for help, it is a really tricky one because it's not just about you can ask for it but people still don't hear it unless you radiate some sort of vulnerability. And I've had to accept I'm not very good at that. And so rather than try to become the vulnerable person, I trust that the right people will see my vulnerability. And I also trust that my strength is still something that's worth just being in rather than being the person who who fine-tunes how to ask for help. You know what I mean? So I can actually reach out to people, but they still don't hear it. It's like I'm talking another language. And it's kind of like, Jess, Somebody once did this thing where they did an analysis of my name and what gets Googled when people search. And it's so interesting. If you want to get really narcissistic, go and do it afterwards, right? <laughs> Just row and see what comes up, right? Net worth, oh, you know, divorce, number of divorces, whatever it might be. <laughs> and husband and boyfriend never comes up for me. And I meet people who assume just, I'm just married with kids. They've never l- looked into it. I don't radiate something that says that's important to people. You know, it's interesting, mm, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I don't place too much importance on it. And thankfully, my love of nature, my my love of humanity, not always humans, humans really annoy me at times, but humanity, it's as great a love as, you know, it's a love that I'm able to extend outwards. And it is yeah. transformative, I think, that sort of love, because in, in your most recent book, you talk about how we need to connect, reconnect with nature. And I think about when I was a little girl, my dad used to drag me and my sisters to go bushwalking in the Blue Mountains. I hated it. (laughs) 
I hated camping. I was, and and I think I was just being a typical tween and then teenager going, I don't want to do this. Yeah. But again, after reading your book, I thought, come on, let's try and get back into this wild world. And you are so right. I took my youngest daughter for a bushwalk just in our sort of down the road from where we live. And we found ourselves hugging this giant gum tree. <laughs> and it, it was so precious. And, mm. and the power of that very simple thing, it is profound. It is. And the science backs it. You know, there's about 40,000 studies that have been done to show the power of nature on, on the human experience, you know, um, fractals in our eyes, in our retinas, recognise the fractals, the pattern in nature, and we get a sense of congruence. And that triggers certain hormones in parts of our brain that give us a sense of belonging and oneness. You know, there's all kinds of stuff to that effect. And it's not woo-woo. There's some really tangible physics behind it and biology. So, yeah, I just say to people, I often get asked, what's your favourite bushwalk? And I'm like, the next one. I've never had a bad one. You can't have a bad hike, right? Because you just get out there and the process of walking, the process of being in nature, it does its job. You don't you don't have to mind map it. You don't have to go, is this working? It just works. You're so right. And I even, I mean, not that I'm doing the full-on bushwalks that you're doing, cl- clambering over massive rocks and all of those sorts of things, just walking to the end of our street with our new puppy dog and there's these lovely gum trees at the end of the street and there's all these magpies that hang out there. And I love greeting them each morning because I'd heard somewhere that I think magpies can identify 10 or 20 faces. So I love that idea that these magpies know me and my daughters and dog and just those simple things. Mm-hmm. Again, it is extraordinary how grounding that is. And and I've got you to thank for that. Oh, that's a, well, that's, Lovely to hear. That is really nice to hear. (laughs) Because that's what you do, Sarah. I think never underestimate the power of your words and and the stories that you share because it has such such an impact on people. Because another thing that again struck me with your most recent book, because I'm a big person for kindness. I think we need to be kind. And being kind is has been underrated for too long. And you probably can pronounce this better than me, but you write about this wonderful, is it philotimo, the, the Greek concept of big kindness. Can you explain yeah. explain that to our listeners? Because I just, I think it's such a wonderful way to think about leading our lives. It's awesome. It's pronounced philotimos. And it's a radical respect for kindness is roughly how it translates. And it's kind of embedded into the Greek mentality. What it is, it's kind of like, it's this idea that you give kindness to, in particular, a stranger. So that's the the concept behind it, is that you always welcome a stranger into your home. You will help a stranger if you see them in the street in some kind of trouble or whatever. Anyone who's been to Greece will know that that's the case. You look slightly perplexed for a moment and about five Greeks suddenly are in front of you wanting to help you, you know, and then they'll actually walk with you the three blocks to take you to the bakery or whatever. Um, So... Yeah, it's a particularly Greek thing and it's. I interviewed a whole lot of people in Greece about it and they just said, ah, it's not a big deal. It's just what we get taught. And I, I do see it in action. But it's this idea that not that you'll get something from it, it's this idea that you've already received 
that kind of kindness and you now need to pay it forward. So it's not like you do it expecting something, it's the other way around, you know. And I think that's the lovely aspect of it is there's this kind of implicit gratitude that you've experienced incredible kindness and so you've almost got to purge it out into the universe again. And what we have left is an outward connecting with other humans. And once you get rid of the shame and the awkwardness around that by just doing it, it is a wonderful way to live. I can't imagine any, and I'm a, I'm a very, you know me, I'm quite a reserved person. I sort of do things a little bit, you know, a bit closed and I, I'm not a gushy kind of, you know, flamboyant person. Um, but I have learned how to just reach out. Now, before we go though, there's two things that I really would like to ask you. And one of them, again, from your most recent book, is that you talk about in there about, and I love this particular quote, you say, humanity suffers by not having conversations about the hard things, the stuff that we despair about and takes us to our lonely edge. Now, I want to know from you, what is your lonely edge? What are those hard things for you? Yeah, that's an awesome question, Jess. My lonely edge is, oh, it's it's all those quandaries about whether I, I'm enough. I also despair about what's going to happen to the planet. I despair that I will reach my end of my 94 years and I won't have done everything I can. And also, yeah, my lonely edge is love. It's the love intimacy piece. So that's that. They're probably my lone. Everyone's lonely edge is different, right? It's the hard stuff. It's the stuff that you know how I describe it. It's when you get home from a loud party and everyone's been rah rah rah, and you've had one or two drinks, and you get home and it's that horrible glare of the bathroom, and you're looking in the mirror and you're just going, "Oh God, this is me. This is this is this is it. This is me. Is this what's it? It's about." And that's your lonely edge. It's the stuff that you think about when you're slightly tipsy and you get home and it's all a bit grim and you go, what, what, is, what is there? So, yeah, for me it would be those two things, um, yeah. And that's why the com- I write books to be able to have conversations. I literally write books so I can have conversations like this one with you. That is why I do what I do. It's a very, very selfish pursuit, Jess. It's not altruistic at all. It's not a selfish pursuit because it is a way of having I think those big conversations and and the other thing that I wanted to ask you mm. and this is in your book and I and and I love it because we so often have glib chats with people we see people we pass them how are you yeah great fine blah blah we don't listen but you have something in your book where you say how is the state of your heart in this breath mm. yeah it's it's the farsi or persian version of how are you and it just says so much more, doesn't it? It asks so much more. It gives so much more. So it's how is the state of your heart, how is your soul, your very entity, the sense of yourself right now in this moment that we're sharing together? And as soon as you ask the question, the person who answers it has to get mindful. You render them choiceless, you know, which is a gift. And they have to then answer the question with a little something more than, oh, busy, flat out, you know. It's a beautiful question. Thanks for reminding me of it. So what's your answer? How is the state of my heart in this breath? I'm heightened. I'm on full alert. I am aware of my responsibilities. I feel sad. I 
I feel landed. I feel arrived though. I feel like I am exactly where I'm meant to be. And that includes not having control of things because right now I, I don't know whether this tour I'm doing, I'm going on a national tour to talk about these things around Australia and I don't know if it's going to be called off. So I'm in a very, I'm in that free fall state, but it means that I'm on, I'm vibrant. Um, but I'm also in my, I, I'm at my edge. I'm at my lonely edge just to bring all the pieces together. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing so much of you with us and through your beautiful books and for challenging us all to be better. And uh, it's a real joy to talk with you. Oh, I've, I've loved this chat. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, beautiful. Sarah makes me want to be a better person, but she does tolerate my love of Violet Crumbles and obsession about the reality show Below Deck. If you enjoyed this conversation with Sarah, please share it with a friend or take a moment to rate and review. To find out more about Sarah's books and her blog, visit sarahwilson.com and listen to her podcast Wild at Listener. Next week, I speak to Stephanie Rice about her champion mindset and coming to terms with life after the Olympics. At 24, thinking like I've already peaked in not just swimming, like in life, um, that was like a really shit feeling. (laughs) Like I just was like, well, what's the point? Like not that I was, I would have said I was depressed without necessarily getting tested or checked or whatever but it was kind of like this feeling of just emptiness and loneliness and like also just lost. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me Jess Rowe, audio producer Chris Marsh, executive producer Nick McClure, supervising producer Sam Kavanagh. Until next time remember to live big Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.